well, if you have a Bible uh, with you, open it to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to be uh, in verses 3 to 8 and then finish with just a little, little something from verse 10. I'll tell you why I'm using it this year just a bit, but uh, man, I just keep thinking we were singing, ain't no grave going to hold my body down. I mean, that's basically the message uh, of, of this morning, resurrection and how it matters. If you came to a church on Easter Sunday expecting to hear a message about something other than resurrection, uh, uh, then it's... Uh, you know, it, it's kind of crazy. It, at the same time, I can tell you for preachers, when we are a resurrection people, this is, this is what sets us apart from, you know, other religions is that this, this key belief that our God is alive and well. Uh, and we preach it every week and we believe it every day. And so to be able to talk about it on a, on a day like today in some different way is, is somewhat of a challenge. And I'll get it in a bit why I like using Paul so much. But uh, at the entrance of a church called the Church of All Nations in Jerusalem, which is next to the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a sign inside of the church that warns every visitor. It says, no explanations inside the church. Big, all capital letters, no explanations inside the church. And its intended purpose is it's there to discourage talkative people, most notably tour guides, who bring groups inside to explain all of the paintings on the wall and the reason that the church exists there. And it, the, the, the priests who attend to that place don't want talkative tour guides to disturb the, 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 the church's prayerful you know, ambiance with their lectures, you know, uh, intellectual lectures. But it, Actually, that those words, no explanations inside the church, has always struck me as very good advice for preachers on Easter Sunday. When you are confronted uh, by a room full of people who, in all honesty, and this is not, I'm not saying this is a, to, to, to cut us down, but just to be honest, a room full of people who we spend most of our time in secular and social ways of thinking about life, uh, where in those aspects of our life we're highly compartmentalized, the dead stay dead, and God, if there is one, doesn't intervene in the natural order. Preachers like me, are, are, we're, you know, you get tempted to mount a defense of the resurrection in a way that will become like plausible to your mind. Like I would be able to talk about it in ways you go, oh, Okay, well, now that you say it that way, I'll change the way I go to work tomorrow. And you work hard, you know, over the years to go, how can I, you know, reinvent this message this one time? Uh, and so I can make a case. I, I actually love the apologetic, uh, concrete, constructive evidence that, is, that exists for the resurrection. And I believe that if one were to put together the key elements uh, of the resurrection, that there's a preponderance of evidence to its, to its truthfulness, the objective evidence, you know, that exists. But I believe that there's something that's much more important because I think when we just try to make a case, we end up taming a, this dangerous mystery into some sort of manageable, harmless way of looking at it. 
And we also waste a really valuable opportunity to bring the, the congregation that we have into confrontation with, with the transforming presence of, of a living God by just explaining it. So here's my view. Easter Sunday is for proclamation, not for explanation. It's, it's a time to meet the one who changes everything. And the central question of Easter is not what happened to Jesus way back then, but where is Jesus now for us? It matters uh, not because of our questioning the resurrection, but by allowing uh, the resurrection to question us, to get inside of us. Who are we now and what must me be? What must you know, I become and you become in light of the risen Christ? And this morning, I don't really want to I don't want to convince you so much as invite you. It's a mixed crowd of believers and seekers and doubters to, to embrace the resurrection and, it, and to at least consider its effect on you, its transformative effect on you. And in order to connect the risenness of Jesus with the risenness of, 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 of what he offers us, there, there are two fundamental themes I'm going to get at. One of them is Easter. You know, this thing we call Easter is actually now. And the second thing is that resurrection has consequences. And so let's pray and we'll unpack this uh, through the word of God. So Jesus, we ask that you would show us who you are now and how that matters now. We don't believe that we can unfold and put the pieces together of this divine mystery in a way where it will go, oh, makes perfect sense. But we, we do believe that the truthfulness of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing is so important. It's so earth-shatteringly important that by comparison, nothing else matters. As your word says, If you've not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. But if you have been, and you have been, then everything matters. Everything falls under that. And so, Lord, we don't shrink back from the mystery. We ask that you would uh, unfold it for us, that you would give us divine revelation in this moment. Start with me, Lord. Speak to me that I might speak to these people that you've gathered in Jesus' name. Amen. So take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3-8. We'll have it up here on the screen for you. Let me just give you a little bit of context in this. This is written by a guy who went by two names. His name was never changed. He went by a name depending upon where he was. He was either Saul or Saul or Paul. Uh, If he was in a Hebrew-speaking context, and he was Saul. If he was in 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 a Gentile speaking context, and he was Paul, and he uh, had an interesting background. He was a guy who his, was, was amongst the, the intellectual elite of his time, was top of the class, full scholarship, you know, Harvard, you know, law school kind of guy, and uh, outperformed all who were, you know, who were with him. He was amongst the, the, the elite, and he was so good at what he did that he was given a task to squash this uprising called the way. And he was there at critical times in the very, very early history of the church. For example, a guy by the name of Stephen was appointed by the apostles 
to wait on tables, actually to solve and resolve a dispute between widows. There were Greek-speaking widows, and there were Hebrew-speaking widows who would come to the table, and there was a dispute arising as to how the, 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 the food, the, the, the stuff would happen there. And Stephen was appointed amongst a group of other guys to make sure that that was actually taken care of in a way that would honor everybody. And so you would expect, if you read the story of Stephen, you would find lots of evidence of him doing this. But in fact, the next mention of Stephen, which is just a couple lines after he's appointed, Stephen isn't waiting on tables. He's out in the public preaching, doing what Jesus did. Literally, Luke says he's stirring up the crowd. And as a result of this, he's arrested. He's given a mock trial. And he's stoned. And uh, says in this account of Stephen's martyrdom that Jesus actually gives him a standing ovation. Jesus stands at the right hand of God and and sees what he's doing. But it tells us, in an interesting side note, that there was a guy there holding the coats of those who were throwing the stones, overseeing this execution by the name of Saul. This same guy, we find out a couple chapters later, he, uh, he makes his way up to Damascus because there's a report of a significant church that's being planted. Because once the persecution starts, then things start to happen. The church gets spread out of Jerusalem and starts to go to other parts of Turkey and you know, Greece and, and, and around that basin. And so there's this significant uh, report of, of a church in Syria, in Damascus. And so Paul, Saul is on his way there. And as he's on his way there, he gets encountered on his way by this voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You've heard this story? And, and uh, he says, well, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. You know, he, Jesus reveals himself to Saul on the way to Damascus to oversee the execution, you know, putting down an uprising. And, and Saul gets radically saved on this day. He gets blinded, and then a, a guy, another guy, uh, gets told by Jesus, hey, go and lay your hands on Saul, the one who's the head of killing Christians, and pray for him, and he'll get his sight back. Can you imagine being that guy? You know, you want me to do what? I mean, because you know, there's, there's really no evidence that he'd had any prior ministry experience, didn't have a deliverance ministry or maybe a prison chaplain or something like that. He's just a dude, and he's, and he's tasked by God to go and lay his hands on the guy who is, who is overthrowing the church. Pray for him, and he'll get his sight back, and then he'll see you. And you're like, yeah, is there any other jobs that I could have? And so he does, and Saul gets his sight back, and then he gets introduced to the apostles. Now imagine that meeting where this guy, who is the guy that's the head of taking out the church, gets introduced to the people who are left tasked by Jesus to start the church, and, and, and there's a meeting that, that takes place there. It's, it's, it's brokered by a guy by the name of Barnabas, and it's, it's quite an interesting story to follow this guy, Saul, who eventually we come to know as Paul, um, and he then writes letters that go out, that circulate amongst the churches that he's planted, and uh, He says that the center of his theology as he goes and preaches is the cross because he tried using wise and persuasive words and a couple people got saved. So he says, when I went to Corinth, I decided to put all that aside and just to preach one message about Jesus crucified. 
And then he writes all these different letters. And there's this one chapter in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 15 that is about one subject and one subject alone. It's about resurrection. It is the longest chapter in all of Paul's writings. And it is the most complete, I think, account of resurrection. And if you want to read a defense of what it means and how it matters, then I would challenge you sometime today to just put everything else aside and read 1 Corinthians 15 in its entirety. It won't take you that long uh, to read it. But the reason that I believe that this is the most pertinent account for us is because Saul, who becomes Paul, is more like us than any of the apostles that walked with Jesus. How so? Well, in one way, he didn't have an objective experience of walking with Jesus while he was alive or sticking his hands in the wounds like Thomas did. He, you know, when Jesus says to Thomas, when Thomas sticks his hands in the wound, he says to Thomas, blessed are you amongst men, you know, for this, but how, you know, even more so those who will believe in me without this kind of objective reality. And, and, and Saul is like us. Saul does, when Saul goes back and says, hey, I was on the way to Damascus, and Jesus came and talked to me, I think probably people, people like other religious Jews or Messianic believers like Peter probably were like, yeah, right. And so I think Saul is like us in that, you know, we have, how many of you have an, have an objective evidence of your encounter with Jesus that you could show us right now? None of you. None of us have that. We have subjective experiences. They're no less true, but yet they're subjective. And Saul's evidence of the resurrection is one that is deeply personal and deeply true and deeply real, but it's like ours and that it's not something that's, it's not an account of walking with Jesus like the others had. And so I love it. And this is what he says in verses 3 to 8. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some of them have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, so they all get to see him. And then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Do you know what he means by abnormally born? He means that he wasn't born at the right, he wasn't born in the time where he could walk with him like they did. And so he had to, to meet him in a different time in a different place. I like Paul's account of the resurrection because it's a lot like mine. As one abnormally born. I wasn't born in a time uh, like Peter and James and John. I was born in a time like 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 Saul or Paul, after the days that Jesus walked the earth. And my encounter with Jesus, which I'll talk a bit about in a minute, is, is subjective but true, like, like his. And so I want to break down quickly for you. This is not going to be a long message, I promise you. If your Easter ham is in the oven, you'll be fine. Uh, but I want to break down these two themes for you really simply and quickly because I think they both matter to us immensely. The first is this, Easter is now. And, and, and here's the reason that that matters. And I would say now with capital letters, N-O-W, now, since, since it occurs only once a year, we oftentimes mistake Easter Sunday for a commemorative anniversary of a past event, kind of like a, you know, 
the day that marks the end of uh, this war. We remember this day as a holiday. And in the same way, we have this day called Easter Sunday where we remember that there was a time when Jesus rose from the dead, like a holiday that we have each year to remember something that happened long ago. And I wouldn't, I don't need you to say it out loud, you can if you want, but wouldn't you agree that that's the default of how we think about Easter? Easter is our time as Christians where we set apart a Sunday to remember there was a time long ago that Jesus died, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, and then w- was raised from the dead. That we on this day are remembering that, right? Isn't that our default? But I think that is an absolutely improper understanding of, of what it is. In fact, the earliest churches treated the mystery of Jesus' death and resurrection as timeless. It was the subject of every gathering. Every time they broke bread and had the bread and the cup together, or any time they worshipped, the center of that was the risenness of Jesus. And, and it's a resurrection community, a resurrection fellowship that every aspect of their lives is, is coming into, into relationship with that. This is, I, w- I read this morning a bit from, from Acts 13 when we were around the fire because I'd read it yesterday. Paul actually preaching in an area of Turkey uh, to, a, to a synagogue that has Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles. And he basically just reads this, he just tells them the story of Israel and connects the resurrection to Israel. I mean, this is the, it's just, it, it was simple, and it was the only thing they preached. God did all this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he brought Jesus, and then he died, and then he rose from the dead. And his, because his body didn't experience decay like David's, this now is being offered to you. You can reject it at your own peril, or you can receive it. It was the, it was the center of everything. And the establishment of an annual observance day called Easter Sunday was a much later development. Really had to do with the separation of the church from its Jewish roots. Really cool thing that happened uh, to be this year and last year, Marianne, you pointed this out to me, was that, that Pesach or Passover actually occurred on Good Friday for two years in a row. That doesn't happen. Uh, much. I'm not sure how many times in history that's happened, but uh, it's a significant thing and maybe a a sign or a message to us that we should look at rejoining. But the establishment of this special day happened a lot later in church history. And the resurrection, although it, you know, broke into history on a specific occasion, there was an actual day that this happened. It isn't property of the past. It's now. And as God's, you know, future showing itself in our present, the message of Easter is is the name of our church. It's Maranatha. It's where he is come and he is coming collide in in an eternal kind of now. The resurrection is it's now. Easter is now. And Jesus is alive. He's still showing up. He still shows up to transfigure the present in a world that's filled with absence. And, and Jesus isn't over. <laughs> and the story isn't over. And it's only going to be completed uh, in the complete restoration of, of the whole world of the cosmos when God is in all and, and, and all are in God. But Easter isn't something that we remember. It's something we live and breathe. In fact, the English word resurrection is most oftenly uh, translated from a Greek word anastasis. And anastasis literally means uprising. It, it's interesting to think of the resurrection as an uprising, isn't it? Um, but, but the question becomes an uprising by whom and with whom 
know, against what? Well, um, it's, it's, uh, it's against death, against hopelessness, against terror. If you live in Sri Lanka today, then you would think of resurrection as an uprising against something that would scream to us that who we are, what we have isn't real. The second theme of, of resurrection, though, isn't just that it's now, that it's here and now, and that it matters for us here and now, but that it actually has consequences. Now, consequences, I don't mean this necessarily in a negative way. I mean like in a cause and effect way. If something happens, then what's the effect of that? And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead has an effect. It has consequences. The resurrection is its more than an idea that we talk about or a philosophy that we believe. It's something that we become, something we prove in the, in the way that we live our lives or live our stories. There's a guy by the name of Rowan Williams who describes it this way. He says, the believer's life, how many of you are believers? You don't have to raise your hand, but if you're a believer, this is your story. The believer's life is a testimony to the risenness of Jesus. He or she demonstrates that Jesus is not dead by living a life in which Jesus is the never-failing source of affirmation, challenge, enrichment, and enlargement, a pattern, a dance, intelligible as a pattern, only when its pivot and its heart become manifest. The believer, the believer shows resurrect, the resurrected Jesus as the source and the center of his or her life. The resurrection is actually, the, the, one of the consequences of the resurrection is it isn't just a philosophy, it's actually proven in our lives. And, um, you know, my story of, of the time where, you know, I always have a hard time figuring out how to talk about this. I, I believe that my conversion experiences are much like, you know, my salvation being worked out with fear and trembling over time, that I, I could tell you many times in which God encountered me throughout my life but the time in which I believe that God penetrated the deepest parts of my heart and dug out the deepest roots uh, it, it happened. Uh, I was much like Paul or Saul at the time. I wasn't leading the band of persecution against Christians, but I can tell you this. I love my sin. Do you know the reason I continued to sin is I liked it. And the reason that you continue in the sin is not, it's not, I mean, you, if there's sin in your life that's besetting, it's honestly, it's because there's passion for it. And you, you bought into a message from the church, it's a wrong message, that the way to overcome sin is to exchange your passion for sin for apathy for Jesus. It's never going to work. The way you get over an old love is a new love. And so I had just tried to over and over again to, 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 to quench my passion for sin, my apathy in the church, and just, well, I'll just go to church, and it just didn't work. And one day, I prayed. I remember praying, and it's a whole long story. I wish I had the time to tell you. But I had prayed one day in particular, driving home in a car, Lord, if you're real, break into my car right now and show me while driving. Kind of a stupid prayer if you think about it. But it's what I prayed. I can remember where I was. I can remember how fast I was driving. I remember very vividly praying that prayer. And guess what happened? Nothing. <laughs> Which to me was further evidence that, you know, while these are all historical truths, it doesn't really have any. The resurrection wasn't now, and it certainly didn't have consequences for me today. And so God didn't break into that, that, that car that day. Instead, he, I, he sent me to a conference. And at this conference, it had nothing to do with the church. It had to do with something else. I sat next to a guy who I'd never met, who had nothing to do with me, and his name was Rocky Goings. 
Anybody know Rocky Goins? I doubt he's still alive, but I sat next to this guy. What are the odds I'd sit next to Rocky Goins at this massive conference full of people? What are the odds? And I sit next to Rocky Goins, and what are the odds that he would know anybody from the little town that I lived in compared to where he lived? What are the odds? What are the odds that he would know a guy that went to my church? And what are the odds that he would know about the only guy in my church whose name I knew? And he said to me, hey, you should ask this guy, this particular guy at your church named Jack, you should ask him about this other little retreat thing we do. And so um, I had no intention to ask Jack anything, uh, but I'm something of an extrovert, and I, uh, when I'm around people, I like to have a way to talk to them. And what are the odds that that very next Sunday I actually went to church? And standing at the back door greeting people was Jack. And I said, oh, hey, Jack. Wow, I had lunch this week with a guy who says he knows you. I doubt he does. His name's Rocky Goings. His face lights up. Rocky, I love him. What did he have to say to you? I said, da 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 He told me to ask you about this thing. He said, oh, yeah, you're going. <laughs> so at this thing, at this conference, there's this particular time. What are the odds? There's this particular time in the conference where you have to kind of do something. Don't you just hate it at those conferences where they tell you, now we're all going to participate in this group activity? Yeah, I mean, how many of you like that? Yeah, you know, how many of you know God never breaks into that? So what are the odds that during this thing, when you have to get up and you have to kind of like come up with something you're going to say in front of everybody, something like you're going to surrender to or give up or whatever, that, that um, I'm thinking, you know, guys are coming up with things, you know, you know how, it, I don't know, maybe ladies, you've never been to a guy's sort of get around the fire and get in touch with your inner man. And, you, you know, you try, you, we're not as emotionally available as you are, so we don't oftentimes like to talk about the things you do. So we come up with, like, keywords or something you can give up. Or, you know, if you want to play it safe, you just say something like, you know, uh, um, I need to trust more. <laughs> and if you want to get real, you might mention, you might say something like porn, you know, because I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's, of course. Um, and so I'm thinking of a buzzword, and I'm back towards the back of the whole line, so a lot, all the good words have been taken. <laughs> and, and, I'm, I'm getting, and I'm walking down a row, and I'm telling you that it was subjective, so I can't prove it happened. I don't think anybody else heard it, but it's as real to me as any of you are here right now. I heard the voice of God say to me, Die. You need to die. Surrender your life and die to yourself completely that I might live. You want to experience resurrection, you first have to die for there to be an uprising in your life. You have to die to live. And I can tell you that that was the first time in my life, not the first time I'd heard that message. I grew up in the church and heard it many times. It was the first time in my life I heard that message and it sounded like a gift and didn't sound like losing. You know, the reason is I like myself. I've always liked myself. I still like myself and I like my life. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't discouraged. I didn't want to die to my life. I like my life. And, and I, I even like my sin. I but I knew God was real. I knew he was inescapable. And so this was the first time in my life that that word to me sounded like grace, like 
I will offer you something more that you don't deserve if you will just let go of who you think you need to be. And so like Saul, Paul, I met him. And it changed everything. The believer shows the resurrected Jesus as the source and center of their life when it becomes real within them. And if you do not know him that way, I'm here today to proclaim that he's alive. Not to prove, but to proclaim. The cool thing about it is that the the resurrection isn't just... uh, it just hit me so hard today as we were singing. It's not just an individual thing. I could tell you my story all day long, but it's not just uh, the, resur- the One of the consequences of the resurrection is it's not just individual consequences. Uh, we sang just a bit ago, if you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. Right? We sang that. It's a cool song. Isn't that a great song? If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. And really, we could sing that if you walked out of the grave, we're walking too. In the early church art of the resurrection, I think I have a picture you can put up on the screen. In the early church, the uh, way that they remembered and depicted the resurrection, Jesus is never by himself. Never in the artistry, the iconography that was on the church walls, that never was Jesus depicted by himself. In this picture, this is kind of a cool one. In this picture, you can see Jesus, you see him, you know, rising up out of the grave. You see he's standing here on Hades. He's standing here on death. He's, he's, he's got the cross in his hand. He's got the halo over his head. But he's holding in his right hand Adam. And behind Adam, clinging to him, is Eve. And behind Adam and Eve are the six, six heads of six pro, the six prophets. And on the other side are David and Solomon. And this is depicted as a, as a way to for the church to represent the fact that when he walked out of the grave, we walked too. You know, it it, it was never depicted by himself. He was always depicted taking the dead by the hand and pulling them out of their tombs. Christ's hand snatching us from death. It's a pretty vivid image, isn't it? I always love, uh, my buddy Kenny Nabb always likes to say, that uh, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that he had, you know, the reason that he says Lazarus come forth is if he didn't say Lazarus, all the graves would have emptied. If he just said come forth, that, that all, and so, but Jesus' hand is literally snatching us from death. It's a vivid image. But the problem is the things that are killing us, the things that are keeping us in the grave, that keeping, they exert this powerful force or gravity on us and we can sag we can get hung up under the weight of despair and hopelessness and we can resist you know the hand that pulls us upward there's an old poet who said do not by hanging down break from christ's hand christ came to save us from our least selves he didn't come to save us from the best you he came to save you from the worst you that's the gift and the challenge of the resurrection and it applies uh, to our common life as well as to our private selves you know Here's how we see that. The very first disciples, the ones who followed Jesus, what happened to them after his death? Anybody know? Immediately after his death, what happened to them? Did they get together and say, man, we got we to regroup? No, they scattered. They were broken. They were shamed by the events of, 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 of the Pesach with, with Jesus on that night and his arrest and all that we call the passion. If you go watch that film, uh, you know, Mel, I almost said Mel Brooks, Mel, Mel, Mel Gibson movie, The Passion, that graphic imagery of it, 
the, the, you know, one thing that you need to recognize in that is that the first disciples were scattered and shamed. And resurrection um, applies to the community. And you see that perfectly clear when you see how this broken and bewildered community was restored to life. And it's the same today for those of us who follow him, that resurrection matters for us. It's, resurrection is about the healing and restoration of, 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 of all that's wounded and severed, particularly relationships. Think about it. Think about how resurrection heals and restores the relationship between God and humanity, right? Isn't this what resurrection does? Jesus comes, dies, and raised from the dead, and now he makes it possible, as Paul says, for us to be in right relationship with God. This is what it does. But it also goes beyond that and makes it possible for relationships between humans and other people. So between you and your mom and dad, or you and your husband, or you and your children, or you and your coworker, or you and the guy that cuts you off in traffic, or you and your neighbor, or you and anyone, you can be restored in that relationship ultimately because of resurrection. Because there ain't no grave going to hold you down. Nothing can hold you down. If the resurrection is real, there's nothing that can that hold you. You can lay your life down and he'll pick it back up again. Think about the power of that. One old theologian put the, put the case in, uh, for, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wildest possible, in the widest possible terms. He said the resurrection isn't about the resuscitation of a body. It's the beginning of the restoration of the world. That's, that's, that's really what I strive to preach today, that resurrection changed the world. It's not the same world as it was before Jesus rose from the dead. It's a different world today because resurrection's real and Jesus is alive. Paul says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if he isn't alive, none of this matters. Every, every, if, if you come to the conclusion that what I'm saying today isn't true, then none of this matters and don't come back. Why would you come back? Into, into a setting like this. You're welcome to come back, Frank. I, mean, I don't mean like don't, you're not welcome to come back. It, but my point is, if you come to the conclusion this isn't real, wh- why, would you, why would you live your life? It, why would you put yourself in a position where you could be the softest of targets, turn the other cheek, and, and, and allow you know, the sorts of things to happen to you that happened to Jesus or happened to Stephen or happened in Sri Lanka? Why would you even allow for that possibility if resurrection isn't real? But if it is, man, what a difference that makes. And, of course, I can't control what you take away from our, our celebration of Easter today. But what I, what I can hope is that the faithful will be inspired and empowered and that the outsiders, outsiders are here today. Maybe you'll just be intrigued enough and even fed enough by spending time with a resurrection community that's alive in the spirit that it would stir something in you that would be like a splinter in your mind or in your heart that you can't get rid of. My primary task today on this Easter Sunday, though, is not to recite or to argue the evidence of the resurrection, but to help our fellowship become the evidence of the resurrection. And I'm praying that someday the whole world will one day see and know a church that's been shocked into joy, you know, and has never recovered from it. At the end of the day, resurrection is here and now, and it has consequences. And the beauty of it all, and Brian, this is my ending. It is, it's not a concept to be explained nearly as much as it's a gift to be received. It's the gift that I received that day when I heard the voice of God say to me, you need to die that you can live. That's why Paul says it's grace. In verse 10 of this same passage, this is just the ending verse, he says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. 
and his grace to me is not without effect. What Paul is saying here is he said, there was a day where I was the guy who was taking out the church. And if you think about the way God should have dealt with me on the road to Damascus, what he should have done is he should have taken vengeance on me for what I'd done to his beloved, for what I'd done to his very body. But instead, he met me, and he gave me something I didn't deserve. He gave me something that I didn't earn and I could never earn. He gave me a gift. The thing about gifts um, is they're, you know, they're amazing, but you're, they're always complicated. So if I were to offer right now, This $50 to Lily, what would you say? You'd say, no, I don't need your money. You'd say, no, I don't want your money. What if I take that $50 and I like stomp on it and I crumple it up and I kick it a couple times. And then I say, here's my cruddy $50. You want it? So do you want it or not? You, you can give it back. <laughs> the reason she wants it is because she knows it has value. But what did she do to earn it? She did nothing. Why did I give it to her? Because I love her. Because I wanted to give her a gift and she could choose to accept it or to reject it. And so Paul chose to accept it. You can take it as gospel truth from a persecutor-turned-preacher, or you can take it from a garden-variety prodigal-turned-pastor like me. But here's the bottom line. But by the grace of God, Paul wasn't what he was. Jeff isn't what he was. And you don't have to be what you were or what you are. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would pour out your grace on all of us. I pray, Father, that you wouldn't reduce the power and the mystery of the gospel into something condensed that we can understand, but instead you would infect us with it. You would put it into our hearts like a splinter in our mind that we can't get rid of it. That we would be evidence for a lost and dying world of the hope of the resurrection. That we would be recipients of grace in the same way in this sanctuary this morning that your servant Paul was on the road to Damascus. We pray, Father, that you would pour yourself out in gift form. That you might be the most significant gift offered to us ever in our lives and that we would say yes. If you'll stand with me if you're able. We're going to close with the song. It's our custom here to open the altar. It's not an expectation. It's an invitation. You're welcome to come and pray on your own. But what I'd really like to do is pray with you, particularly if you're struggling to receive what God desires to pour into you. And so you feel led, you come, as they sing.